Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have, but after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with with them. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Friend, do what you came for. Then the man stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Thanks, Carl. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we uh, come to you now to, to ask that you would bless your word, that you'd pour out your spirit uh, on us, that we might hear the truth of the gospel and that we might respond to it in faith and obedience. Lord, we ask that you would stir our hearts and quicken our hearts to love you, 
to love Christ, to love the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Lord, draw us near to you and strengthen our faith. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. I don't know uh, if you've seen the movies Mission Impossible. Uh, the, the franchise is a bit old by now, but there was a time when um, when they just seemed to be making sequel after after sequel. I think they made three, didn't they? But it seemed like an eternity uh, watching all those films. But I've often thought it was particularly odd that uh, Mission Impossible wasn't called something else, uh, something more like Mission Particularly Difficult uh, or mission a bit tricky, because uh, impossible doesn't mean just hard or even wildly improbable, it means that it can't be done, and he always seemed to be able to do it, whether it was flying a helicopter through a tunnel or whatever it was, he always got the job done, which clearly then is not impossible. As human beings, I think we don't do impossible very well. We're constantly constantly fed that depressing lie that nothing is impossible if you set your mind to it, Uh, which oddly enough hasn't helped any of us kind of win the Nobel Prize for physics. Maybe we're not determined enough to do that, but uh, if you set your mind to it, you can do it. That's the lie. Actually, uh, as I was waking up this morning listening to news radio, they were talking about the uh, Marathon des Sables. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's uh, it's an exceedingly long marathon in the Sahara Desert. It's basically six marathons kind of thrown together in the Sahara. And this guy said, and I kid you not, he said, nothing is impossible. Uh, if you set your mind to it. You know, there's, there's no limitation. I thought, you know what, I bet I would be limited. <laughs> I, bet I, couldn't, uh, I bet I couldn't run through the Sahara. Uh, there are some things which are just impossible, and that would be one of them. We don't do impossible well as human beings, but the cornerstone of Christianity is that God has done something for us in Jesus, something that is impossible for us, something that we couldn't do ourselves. And as Jesus nears the cross in this section of Matthew, we begin to see more and more clearly, I think, what it is that Jesus has done and why it is that we need him to do it for us and why we can't just do it ourselves. Jesus has just celebrated the Last Supper with his disciples and Judas has left to go and betray Jesus. And then Jesus, as this, as this passage begins, Jesus says to the rest of the disciples, to the other 11, before this night is over, you're all going to desert me. Verse 31, then Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Now Peter's pretty confident about his own capacity. Uh, he, he believes in himself. Uh, and he says in verse 33, even if everyone else falls away, I won't do it. I won't fall away. I'll never desert you. Uh, Jesus is relatively undeterred by Peter's confidence and says, no, you're wrong. It will happen. I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows three times, you'll disown me. Sorry, before the rooster crows, you'll disown me three times. And if we didn't uh, do it ourselves every day, It would be hard, I think, for us to believe that Peter could be so blusteringly foolish as to contradict Jesus to his face. You know, Jesus is is there saying, no, 
you will deny me. And Peter, and Peter says, no, no, actually, Jesus, I think I know better. No, I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm, sure I'm going to get through this uh, and that you're wrong. Peter says, even if I have to die, I won't desert Jesus. Unfortunately for Peter, he gets a particularly bad rap because the truth is all the other disciples say exactly the same thing. In verse 35, all the other disciples said the same. So it's not as though Peter was the only one thinking this and the only one saying it. All the others were thinking it and all the others were saying it as well. And only a little bit later at the end of that section that uh, Ed read for us, in verse 36, we see Jesus' prediction fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Jesus tells his disciples that on the other side of the crucifixion, on the other side of the resurrection, they'll meet again. But this cross part of Jesus' mission is something that he is going to end up doing on his own. The purpose of that mission is made clear by Jesus' quote from Zechariah 13. So uh, God said through Zechariah, Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds will be struck down and perish, yet one-third will be left in it. This third I will bring into the fire. I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is our God. The purpose of Jesus' mission Uh, The purpose of Jesus being struck down is so that he might refine the people who call on his name. And that mission, Jesus' mission of being struck down and refining and rebuilding his people is something that he must do alone. We can't go there with him. You see, this little interaction between Jesus and his disciples highlights an essential truth. And the essential truth is where Jesus has gone, we can't go. We need Jesus to go there for us. We need Jesus to go to the cross for us. We need Jesus to suffer the wrath of God on our behalf. We need Jesus to die for us, to conquer death for us, to rise again for us and to remake us and remould us, to refine us and to make us holy. Time and again in John's Gospel, Jesus says, where I am going, you cannot come. Peter's self-confidence and the self-confidence of the other disciples is not unique to them. It's not as though they were foolish and we're smart. Because we so easily believe that what we really need is not a unique Jesus, not a Messiah Jesus, not a Saviour Jesus, not a Jesus who does it for us. What we believe that we need is merely a Jesus who points out the way. A kind of glorified usher with his torch lighting the way that we need to follow. Or we think that all we need is an impotent Jesus who needs us to hold his hand as he fulfills his mission in the world. Perhaps a Jesus who didn't quite get the job done on the cross and now he's resorted to our kind of expert services to finish off his mission in the world. Our messianic pretensions know no bounds. We think that we can save ourselves and we think that we can save the world. And yet those ideas, those thoughts, those beliefs are not always obvious. They're they're deeply held beliefs, they affect the way that we live, but we don't always see them for what they are. Two indicators, I think, that we've turned uh, Jesus from being a saviour into an usher 
two indicators of that are prayerlessness and joylessness. So people who never pray are likely to be people who don't need a Messiah. People who can more or less get on without a saviour. People who can more or less get on and just do the job themselves. Just tell me what I need to do and I'll get on and do it. They can do people. Like Peter. I can do this. Contrast Peter, though, with the people of Zechariah 13. Peter says, don't worry, Jesus, I'll come with you. It's all right, I'll be there. The people of Zechariah 13 say, dear God, help us. This world's turning to custard. We've turned to custard and we need you to help us. The first indicator often of our messianic pretensions is, uh, is prayerlessness. The second one is lack of joy. So salvation ends up, rather than being a gift to be received from Jesus, it becomes a heavy burden that we need to carry. It's a heavy burden that we need to carry either for ourselves or for other people. So, for instance, we end up believing that the salvation of our children, that the salvation of our family, the salvation of our friends depends on us and our hard work. And that's a burden that we can't, that we can't carry, that we can't bear. We strive to save others by our sheer determination. We strive to fix ourselves up. Salvation becomes something not accomplished once for all by the death of Jesus, but something that needs to be reaccomplished every day. So instead of done... It needs to be redone every single day and that's a heavy burden. Where Jesus has gone, he says, we cannot follow, we cannot go to the cross, we cannot pay for sins, we cannot conquer death and Satan, we cannot conquer our sinful natures, we cannot conquer our past or our present or our future. What we need is a saviour, we need a shepherd struck down and raised to life a shepherd to go where we can't go and to bring us on the other side with him. So first of all then Jesus says that his mission is a mission that only he can fulfil. Next Jesus uh, and the disciples head into the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus takes the opportunity to go off on his own to pray. So he tells the disciples in verse 38 that my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And then he goes on to pray this agonising prayer or over and over again he prays this kind of agonising prayer of verse 39. Uh, My father, he says, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus prays these painful prayers as he faces the prospect of the cross the next day. The cup that he mentions is the cup of God's wrath that he will endure for the sake of of his disciples. And as Jesus prays for that most central event in the whole of human history, the most central event in the whole of Christianity, Jesus invites his disciples to be part of it, even to contribute to it. It's astounding, isn't it? He invites them to be part of it by praying along with him and keeping watch. So verse 38, Jesus says, stay here and keep watch with me. And yet when Jesus comes back, he finds his disciples have fallen asleep. And so he says, well, you know, wake up, you know, 
keep, keep going, keep praying. And he goes away, he comes back and he finds that they're asleep again. Except that time he doesn't wake them up, he just kind of leaves them be, he goes away. And when he comes back for the third time, they're still there asleep in the garden. And he's been praying all this time and they're fallen asleep. Jesus says to his disciples, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. That's good advice. Uh, We'll save ourselves and others a lot of heartache if we diligently keep watch over our lives and if we diligently pray that we won't fall into temptation. But even at our most diligent, we'll still fall asleep. Jesus says to his disciples, could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? Just an hour. Not really a long time. Just an hour. Not a lifetime of keeping watch. Just an hour. An hour spent praying for the most significant event in all of human history. For the death of the Messiah. Could you keep watch? And pray with me. They couldn't even do it. They fell asleep. Sometimes it feels like that for us as well, doesn't it? It'd be nice just to keep watch, not not even just for an hour, just for 15 minutes to keep watch and to pray. Let alone for a whole lifetime. You see, the point of this chapter is the contrast between Jesus and his disciples. They can't stay awake, but he rises from his prayer with a new determination to do what his father has called him to do. Verse 45, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Only Jesus could set his sights on the cross and endure it in the full knowledge of what it would cost. And that's the point. There are some beautiful words uh, in Luke's account of these events where Jesus is predicting Peter's denial. And Jesus says, you're going to deny me, but I have prayed for you that your faith might not fail. Peter. Peter didn't have a clue. He didn't know what was going on. He couldn't keep watch. He couldn't pray enough to keep himself from falling, from deserting Jesus. But you know what was going on that whole time? (laughs) Jesus was going to the cross. And he says, but I've prayed that your faith might not fail. Things might turn dodgy for the next couple of days. But your faith isn't going to fail. Not because you stayed and kept watch but because I prayed. We can't stay awake. We can't always be alert. And no matter how much we pray, no matter how alert we are, we'll never be alert enough or pray enough. How much we watch and pray does affect our lives. It will dictate to a large degree the kind of struggles and the trauma that we suffer on the way. If we don't watch and pray, our lives will fall to pieces. If we do watch and pray, 
We'll still get there, we'll get there as well, but it will be a much easier ride. But whether we get there in the end doesn't lie in our hands, but it lies in the hands of Jesus. That's why we need to cling on to him. Because he's the saviour. We don't have the diligence or the strength to save ourselves. It's a battle that we're not strong enough to face and it's a battle that we're not diligent enough to see through. So Jesus' mission is a mission that only he can fulfil, but Jesus' mission is also a mission that we don't have the strength to endure. And last of all, Jesus' mission is a mission that can't be fought with conventional weapons. So in the last section that Ed read for us, Judas, uh, one of the 12 disciples, comes to the priests and the religious leaders uh, to arrest Jesus. But when they go to arrest Jesus, one of the disciples reaches for his sword and cuts off the ear of one of the men. We know from one of the other gospel accounts that it's Peter who cuts off the ear uh, of the high priest's servant. It might seem a bit surprising that one of the disciples was carrying around a sword. It seems a bit violent. But it was the kind of thing that people did in those days because travelling by road, uh, you know, walking along roads and paths was a dangerous exercise. You only have to think of the parable of the Good Samaritan, the guy who was walking along and was attacked by bandits. And so people did that. Uh, there's evidence from other religious uh, sects in the early first century who carried swords with them on the way. But Jesus rebukes the disciple who rebukes Peter for this use of violence and says in verse 52, put your sword back in its place. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then will the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? It's almost laughable when you stop to think about it that Judas and the, and the other guys turn up with clubs and swords, to arrest the Son of God. As though that was enough to conquer him. Jesus says that if he wanted, he could have 12 legions of angels. That's about 72,000 angels. Which is not a, lot, not a huge number, but it's more than a small band of thugs and probably more than enough. But Jesus doesn't call on those 72,000 angels because the battle that he's waging is not a battle that can be won like that. Peter's sword and 72,000 angels can't win the battle that Jesus is fighting. People who do battle with swords come to a sticky end. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. They die in the way that they live. But Jesus has come to do battle, but not with a sword, but with a cross. Jesus came to defeat death and sin and Satan, not by slaying other people, but by dying himself. That paradox, the paradox of the cross, is so central to our faith, so central to the reality of the world, to the reality of God's world, That paradox is so central and yet so hard for us to fully appropriate. We seem inextricably drawn to trying to wage war with conventional weapons rather than with the cross. It's so easy to fall into the trap of trying to wage war through wise words 
or to wage war through politics, sometimes through grubby politics and through grubby uh, media campaigns. It's so easy to try and uh, to fall into the trap of trying to wage war through manipulating events and circumstances, by throwing money at things, to try and wage war by doing those things rather than with the cross. And when we do try and fight with the cross, instead of fighting with the cross of Christ, we try and fight with our own cross. Though rather than fighting with the once and f- once for all finished, accomplished work of Jesus... We try to fight with our own suffering. We try to conquer the world by our own misery. But I don't know about you, but my misery isn't enough to save the world. And yet, how easy it is to think that it will be. Isn't that true? But it's the cross of Jesus and the preaching of the cross which is the power of God. Paul in 1 Corinthians writes, for, the wisdom, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And again, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. You might wonder how preaching the cross can win. How can that win? It seems so unconvincing. What will get people into the church? Miracles? Well, Jesus says, uh, Paul says, that the Jews look for miracles, wisdom, profound wisdom, great arguments. Will that get people into the church? Well, Paul says that's what the Greeks are looking for. Exciting uh, worship services, you know, a rocking, thumping band. (laughs) How does the church grow? Through the foolishness of the cross. It would be hard to believe, I think, except that the reason that most of us are here is because we've heard and believed the message of the foolishness of the cross. And every Christian that I know has become a Christian because of the foolishness of the cross. And yet when we live out our lives, we forget that the foolishness of the cross is the wisdom and the power of God. Our instinct to be little messiahs of ourselves and of the world runs deep. But Jesus, in his last night with his disciples, reminds them and us that we don't have the constitution to save ourselves and we don't have the constitution to save humanity either. We don't have the perseverance, we don't have the diligence, we don't have the strength, and we don't have the weaponry. The only way to win the battle is through the battle that's been won, through the death of Christ, done once, proclaimed and announced in all the world, the foolishness and the power of God. Let's pray.
Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much that salvation is not something that we have to accomplish, not even a little bit, but it's something done once and for all by Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we hear that again this morning, we just want to take the time to hand over all those burdens that we've drawn upon ourselves again in the mistaken belief that there's something that we can do or that we have to do to make our way to you, that there's something that we can do or have to do to rescue this world from sin and depravity. Lord, forgive us for our foolishness. Forgive us for our self-confidence. Forgive us for our unbelief. For failing to believe that the cross of Jesus Christ is sufficient. Not just for our salvation, but for the remaking and the recreating of our entire universe. Lord, for those of us who are tired and worn out, help us to come to Jesus Christ, who doesn't call us to a heavy yoke and a heavy burden, but to a light yoke and an easy burden. Father, we ask that as we commit ourselves to him and to the preaching of his cross, we ask that you would build this church and your church throughout all the world. For we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.